Well, good morning, Edgewater. Uh, it's great to be together with you this morning. And I do uh, just want to say that it is a privilege to open up God's Word uh, with you. I don't take this lightly and consider it a huge honor. And I think that I'm, uh, we are all blessed to be a part of a church that has elders who are intentional about training up the next generation of ministers and leaders and um, do that by sacrificing valuable pulpit time. So I do want to thank them for that and also want to Welcome my parents who came this morning. <laughs> they came from Iowa to visit my sister and I this weekend. And um, I hope, I do hope that this is a different experience than watching my high school football games. Um, I hope that it's more of a, a blessing and a ministering to you as well. So um, speaking of my family, I actually have three older brothers uh, along with my younger sister. And Aside from looking pretty similar to each other, at least I'm told we do, uh, we have a lot of things in common. We share some of the same interests in movies and music and TV shows. Uh, We enjoy the same activities. We played the same sports. And most notably, we we dress pretty similarly. Um, I can remember pretty, pretty vividly some different morning arguments that happened when some of us would come down to eat breakfast and realize we were wearing the exact same clothes. Uh, You might be able to relate to that. Now, I'm sure that these similarities happened both organically as a result of us being brothers, but also I know for myself there was a pretty heavy aspect of imitation. Uh, You see, because I saw in my brothers attitudes and images and qualities that I wanted to see in myself. And I categorized those as positive things and then sought to emulate them as a result so that I might share in the same benefits, you know, my my happiness, my success, my maturity, things like that. Now, thankfully, by and large, they were really great examples to me. And I thank them for the example that they laid through adolescence for me. But I don't think that I am odd in this tendency to seek to imitate people that we admire. I think it's a very basic human reality. Think about your own life. Growing up, you, whether you knew it or not, naturally identified people at a young age that you desired to be like. Maybe it was the popular kid in class. And, and you decided that you wanted to follow like them. And so you watched the same movies, wore the same clothes, talked the same way as them. Maybe it was a a teacher or a pastor or parent or sibling. If you grew up in the nineties, especially in Chicago, you probably wanted to be like Michael Jordan. There was a whole generation that decided that they wanted to be like Mike, and so they wore the same shoes as him. They practiced his basketball moves. They took solace in the fact that he once said, I missed more shots than I ever made, because that was also your story too. Um, But this isn't just a juvenile thing. I see it in myself and other college students. We get to college and we instantly pick out the upperclassmen or the professor that we want to be like, because we admire them. Maybe in your job you seek to be like your supervisor or your boss and you follow his or her example and you decide that you want to gain the kind of authority or influence that they have. Maybe it's as a parent you see another parent in their family and you, you like the way that their kids behave and so you adopt different parenting strategies so that you can hopefully see the same result in your children. The examples go on but the point remains We as humans are a bunch of copycats. And that's not a bad thing. We were made to latch on to images of people and and images of beauty and greatness so that we can participate in them. 
But problems arise when we give primacy to an image of someone other than the truly great and beautiful one, Jesus Christ. And so we can see clearly the issues of a kid acting like the naughty popular kid and and copying him, but oftentimes we hardly recognize the ways that we pattern our lives after people other than God to gain for ourselves money or power or whatever else, things that God says will actually harm us. So thankfully, as Paul continues in his letter to the Ephesians, he addresses this human reality with the prior four chapters as his foundation. And as Troy taught us last week, the first half of Ephesians is primarily concerned with the indicative. It displays with great detail our salvation in Jesus Christ, especially the adoption that we have into the family of God. And like the title of our series, the first half of Ephesians concentrates on who you are in light of our union with Christ. Now the second half works in tandem with the first to explain how we can best live into the reality of our adoption and our union with Christ. In other words, it depicts our human and earthly response and responsibility. So that brings us up to where we are this morning, as Pastor Bill said, Ephesians 5, verses 1-14. through 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn into that passage. Ephesians 5, verses 1-14. through 14. And from this text, I hope to show us that in the midst of our human tendencies to imitate others, God says, imitate me. Be like me. And Paul uses this principle as the foundation of Christ-centered ethics and living. So, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, will you read with me? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Father, this morning, would you grant us understanding of your word? Lord, thank you. Thank you for the promise that you give us that unless you build the house, those who build it labor in vain. God, I thank you that this morning 
the ministry does not rest upon me, but upon you. And we are expectant that you will work and speak through your word because that's what you have promised to do. Lord, would you guide us through this passage and help us to see the glorious truth of the gospel, what you have called us to. We do this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, I think that this text is calling us as a church to imitate God by walking in the love of Christ and allowing his light to expose the darkness of your heart so that you might more fully experience who you are in Christ. Let me say that again. We are called to imitate God by walking in the love of Christ and by exposing the darkness of your heart so that you might more fully experience who you are in Christ. Our first point of this morning is this. Imitate God by loving like Christ. Imitate God by loving like Christ. We find this within the first two verses where he says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now I want you to notice that that phrase which frames his call to imitate him. He says, as beloved children. This call to imitate God is legitimate only to those who have been saved by Christ into the family of God. And just like it was natural for me to imitate my brothers because we're family, so it is with God and the family of God. We are to imitate him because he's our father. So if you do call God father, then you better listen up because he says this, we act a certain way in this family. Now if you're like me, when you hear a command like imitate God, there's very little pushback, very little disagreement. It seems very reasonable for God to say, be like me. But it's a different thing to know how to actually imitate God. Because it's kind of a, an abstract or nebulous concept. Is he saying to imitate him is to create a whole universe like he did and, and dwell in perfect unity as a trinity? Thankfully, no, that's not our call. That's not what it looks like to imitate God as a human. Instead, he answers this question as he goes on in verse 2. And he does this by answering the question consistently of what does it look like? And so in doing that, he descends from this 30,000 foot command down into your seats this morning. And so like I said, he keeps answering this question of what does it look like? You say, what does it look like to imitate God? Well, he says, walk in love. What does it look like to walk in love? Well, we know that God is love, and so why don't we try to act like God did when he became a man in the man Jesus Christ? Well, how did Jesus love? Well, it says this. He gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this is where it touches down for us. He says that the, the shape of Christ's love, what Christ's love looks like when he was alive on earth and also today for us is this. It's self-giving, self-sacrificing love right to the very end. Self-giving, self-sacrificing love right to the very end. Have you seen this kind of love in your life? I hope so. I think if you spend enough time at this church even, you'll see it. It's the kind of love that would compel a staff and volunteers to put on a day camp for kids this summer and to provide 
childcare and discipleship to these families, asking very little in return. It's the kind of love that would lead a group to form an ESL group and to sacrifice time and energy in order to provide some of the most vulnerable and isolated people in our city with a safe and warm community to learn English and adapt to a new culture. Maybe it's a love that you've seen in your own family with parents or siblings who have sacrificed time and energy and money in order to give you a better life than they ever had and to give you the opportunities to excel and succeed. But as Paul points out, if you want to see a self-giving love, look no further than Jesus Christ. He loved us to the point of allowing His very own creation to murder Him and to bear the curse for our sin on the cross and to rise again in victory to offer us forgiveness and redemption. That's what self-giving, self-sacrificing love looks like. And that's what we're called to. So you want to imitate God? Love until it costs you something. Love until it's no longer comfortable. Love by giving yourself to others over and over again. Love like Christ did. Imitate God by loving like Christ. So after opening with this initial command, and depicting its perfect example in Christ, Paul then turns his attention to warning against behavior which is exactly opposite to what he has just called us to. So in this next section of verses, Paul calls us to imitate God by avoiding the danger of disobedience. He says, imitate God by avoiding the danger of disobedience. Read with me in verses 3 and 4. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You can see how little some things change as Paul is calling out the prevalent sins of his own day, which are all too common in ours as well. He writes, Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. They must not even be named among you. The NIV puts it, there must not even be a hint of these things among you. And the word that he uses for sexual immorality is, is this word you may have heard of. It's porneia. It's the root word for pornography. It is a catch-all term that includes anything outside or in addition to a committed married relationship between a man and a woman. It says all of those. And along with this list of covetousness and sexual morality, he extends it to include our language. That's not apart from our behavior. And so he mentions crude and foolish language as well. Basically, he's saying that impure relationships, an obsession with getting different items and possessions, pornography, filthy language, the list goes on. They can't coexist with your new life in Christ. They don't fit. But why is that the case? I think if you look a little bit closer, it becomes obvious. It's because he just told you that you're to imitate God and you're to love like Christ did. And he gave himself up for us. And so the placement of this list is very strategic because these behaviors are primarily concerned with taking and getting and consuming. It's much more of a self-getting lust than a self-giving love. 
seen in these behaviors. And so that's why he brings it up. They're the exact antithesis to Christ's sacrificial love. And instead of being concerned with giving yourself, these sins are primarily concerned with taking. And that's why they're so harmful to us. Because the second that we crack the door open, it just keeps getting wider and wider. And we're never going to be able to shut it in our own strength because we're weakened every time by it. And the pleasure that's promised by lust or the security that's ensured by possessions never ultimately satisfy, but we keep grasping and reaching for fulfillment that can only be found in receiving the self-giving love of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, these shouldn't be named among you. Instead, let there be thanksgiving, as he says in verse 4. That is our kingdom response. But Paul continues by warning his readers of the dangers of these deeds. And the picture that he paints is pretty bleak. He writes in verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He says that the destination for those who persist in the sins that he has listed, the destination for the sexually immoral, the covetous, the idolater, it's punishment. And he says that they're idolaters because their behaviors are showing that they don't truly worship God, but rather themselves. This self-directed worship then is seen when they choose to satiate their own evil desires rather than to worship God in obedience and submission. So, these idol worshipers have no inheritance in the kingdom and the wrath of God justly and rightly rests upon them. Let this sink in. Paul is writing to people who are part of the Ephesian church. They're sitting in the pews on a Sunday morning and by all standards, they appear to be walking with the Lord. But these are the very same people that he warns of very real danger and ultimate consequences for their various forms of idolatry. But does God seem harsh in saying this? Some of you might think so and that's, that's okay. After all, for me to quietly covet doesn't seem to warrant such an intense punishment. It doesn't seem like it really hurts anybody. Especially when you compare it to truly evil actions. It's pretty easy for us to look at a situation like Charlottesville and the tragic events that happened there that you see the evil of racism on full display. And it seems evident to most that for someone to elevate his ethnicity above all others and as a result hurt or mistreat the people of a different ethnicity that's wicked. They deserve punishment. They're worshiping themselves or an aspect of themselves and seeking to take or to keep what they think is theirs and that they deserve rather than to give. But in that, we see some similarities and familiarities. Because at the end of the day, a white supremacist and a person committing sexual sin are both worshiping an idol crafted 
to benefit themselves. And so, because of this disobedience, they find themselves in danger of God's just wrath. Now, you don't even need to experience God's final judgment to realize that our sin causes destruction. Charlottesville is an example of that. But you, in your own life, have felt the effects of brokenness, both your own and others. You've known the pain of family dysfunction and brokenness. You've felt the consequences or experienced the guilt as a result of succumbing to temptation. You know the struggle that it can be to keep those secret sins hidden and the isolation that you feel, but most of all, the shame and the self-condemnation that accompany it. It may be that you desperately want free from your idol of self or pleasure or possession or whatever else, fill in the blank, but you don't know the next step. Thankfully, Paul has more to say in this passage. So let's continue into our final section. As we look to be imitators of God, Paul's final exhortation is this. Expose darkness and experience the light of Christ. Expose the darkness and experience the light of Christ. Starting in verse 7, he writes this. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In this flow of thought, he starts by saying, don't be partners with the sons of disobedience. Don't allow yourself to be overcome with idolatry. But why? Why does he say that? Well, he goes on and just listen. I think this is a beautiful summary of the gospel that he writes. Starting in verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness. For at one time you were hopeless and facing despair. At one time... You were blind and reaching around in futility but never grasping. You were at one time bound to your sin. And this is the inescapable reality of you and I and every human being. And then we read those two incredible words. But now. But now you are light in the Lord. But now your prior identity of darkness no longer defines you. But now... You're no longer blind, but now you have a hope and a future inheritance in the kingdom of God. This is who you are. But Paul doesn't end there. He says, walk as children of light. He just said you were darkness and now you're light in the Lord. So now what? You are to walk as children of light take full advantage and actually experience who you are in light of Christ. Become who you are. So I serve as an RA at Moody, a resident assistant for those of you who don't know what that means. 
one of the, the great joys that I get to experience is the freshmen and the new students coming to campus and adjusting to college life. And for many, it's their first taste of freedom post high school. They're coming straight out of high school. And Moody is the first time that they ever get any ounce of independence or freedom or um, the responsibility to make their own decisions. And it's interesting to see sometimes a hesitation of some people to latch on to that freedom and independence. And so what that looks like for me is I basically become a surrogate parent for them. (laughs) They'll come to my room and basically any time before they make a decision like, going and getting an ice cream cone from McDonald's or getting a new job or asking a girl out on a date, they ask me for permission. <laughs> and I, I, it's flattering. I just don't think that's my role. I tell them all the time, I'm not your mom. But what you see in that is, like I said, a hesitation to embrace adulthood. And it's understandable. I think I experienced it. But if this goes on for too long, you start questioning, don't you realize, I've had to say, don't don't you realize you're in college now? Like, you don't have to run things by me. You You can experience that independence and freedom, which is a result of this new transition in life. And so I think Paul is saying something similar here. He's saying, look, you used to be darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So instead of reverting back to your former ways of darkness, walk in the light, enjoy your new reality for which you've been saved too. So when a college freshman takes steps towards independence, it'll benefit him. He'll flourish. He'll mature. But when he slides back into immaturity and dependence, it's only going to be to his detriment. It's not going to produce a good result in his life. And so in a similar way, as a beloved child of God, when you walk in the light, Paul says that it produces a fruit that is good and right and true, and it gives you the ability to discern what is pleasing to him. But darkness is unfruitful. It doesn't benefit you. In fact, it destroys you. It will consume you, maybe slowly at first, but it'll, it'll reap its ill reward. So Paul says, take no part in these unfruitful works of darkness. So you might find yourself this morning and say, I I know that there's darkness in my heart. I live with myself 24-7. But how do I walk in the light? I want to. How do I deal with the darkness in my heart? This next part of the passage, I think, is the thrust of it this morning. And I would argue maybe the most important thing I have to say this morning. Paul says this, if you want to walk in the light, you have to expose the darkness. And so that's what he says in verse 11. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. You might be thinking though, what? Expose them? Doesn't doesn't he realize how hard I've worked to conceal them? (laughs) It's... He wants me to open up about my secret sin habit? Paul even knows how shameful it is. He says in the very next verse, it's so shameful you shouldn't even talk about it. How, why should I expose the darkness in my heart? Doesn't he know the kind of shame it will make me feel? 
What good could come from exposing everything that I've ever worked so hard to conceal and keep in secret? Can I just get past it? Can I just move on, get over it? That's not the way it works. You can't just get over darkness. It'll always just remain there. And it's not just this neutral or docile part in your heart. It's killing you. It's a cancer. It's wanting to consume the rest of your being. You can think of countless examples of Christian leaders who have fallen from grace. And it's because they try to reserve this one inch, this one square inch of property in their hearts while the rest of them is doing good and and walking in the light. But all the while, that little inch is growing and taking over their entire being. It doesn't work like that. Remember what Paul said. It's not fitting. It doesn't fit. They can't coexist, the light and the dark. But do you know that this shouldn't be bad news? It's good news. Look at verses 13 and 14. He says this, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Did you catch that? I didn't the first time, first 20 times I read the passage. But let's break it down. He says this, when darkness is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. It's like, duh, that's what light does. Makes things so you can see them. And that's the very thing that scares me. I don't want to expose the darkness in my heart because then everybody will see it. And everybody will see the kind of mistakes that I've made, the terrible decisions that I've made. But it doesn't end there. He says this, when anything becomes visible, is light. And so, exposure isn't the end goal, but redemption is. And he's not just calling you to a kind of exposure that you'd find in a tabloid magazine, which just puts on blast all of your mistakes for everybody to gawk and gossip about. No, instead, he's asking you to expose the darkness and let the light redeem it and heal it so that you can experience the power of Christ's reconciling work firsthand in your life in places that you never even thought were possible. Your past addiction to pornography becomes a testimony to the grace of God in your life. That former brokenness that you hid from everyone becomes a ministry to those who are experiencing similar struggles. Church, implicit to our call to imitate God is this command. Expose darkness and experience the light of Christ. We've talked a lot about light and darkness in this last week. You probably remember on Monday there was this total eclipse that happened. If you were like me, I had to, I was in class, so I didn't actually get to see it. I only saw a little bit of it. Hopefully you maybe got to see it. Maybe you had the right glasses that you could see it without going blind. Um, but I think that there's something kind of funny about the, the name that they gave it, a total eclipse. Because all the videos and pictures that I looked at, even from the path of totality, which they talked about, yes, the moon was completely covering it, but there was still light coming through from behind the moon. And I think that sometimes we, we buy into a lie that's similar to that of a total eclipse. That 
the darkness in my heart has totally eclipsed the light of Christ. Is that there can, there can never be any light to shine through because I am darkened by my sin. How could Christ ever forgive me or redeem me? How could I ever bring this and confess this to a brother or a sister? But can I remind you that Jesus is the true light and he's a whole lot brighter than the sun. In fact, in John it says that he shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you're in darkness, listen to the words of Paul in verse 14, which says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. (coughs) Believe this promise and experience it. This is a beautiful promise, church, and it's ours. It's ours to lay hold of. Are we exemplifying and encouraging the kind of trust that's necessary for people to experience true restoration within these walls and within these relationships? especially in the midst of their brokenness. Could we be a community that could mutually encourage each other to imitate God and do that by walking in the love of Christ and exposing our darkness in order that we as a church might more fully experience who we are in Christ? Let this be our aim. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, in his life and death and resurrection, paying for our sins and redeeming us, offering us new life in him. Lord, I pray that we would experience that new life. Lord, I pray that there would be nothing more important than walking with you and seeking to imitate you in our lives and in the life of our church. Lord, would we not be distracted by other images which are not as great and beautiful as you, Lord, but rather would we see you as you are, beautiful and glorious. Would we pursue that and allow you to walk with us as we walk with you? Thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.